0: Get ready to go with the workflow and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Jeff Maceolik here to announce show number 180 with guest Michael Stiefel, recorded live Friday, June 9th, 2006. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net training developers to work smarter, and now offering a whole suite of on-site and remote classes in .NET 2.0 technologies. Online at www.franklins.net And by Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com also by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at wwwcode magazinecom And now the man who just can't stop thinking about one of the WWFs, Carl Franklin. Gotta get enough to Thank you
1: very down. much, Jeff Maciolick, and this is Carl Franklin. You're listening to another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, episode 180, if I may be so bold as to assert. Richard Campbell, how are you? You, sir, would be correct. 20 away from the bicentennial episode, which promises to be, well, bicentennial-ish. Very.
2: <laughs> how are you doing up there in Vancouver, British Columbia? Well, turned the house air conditioning on yesterday because it's finally getting a little toasty warm. I think summer has arrived. It's definitely arrived here
1: uh, on the East Coast, halfway between Boston and New York, as we are. Which I like to say from time to time. Um, yeah, I know. I know the feeling. We, you know, I, li- I, we have my office in an old building here, and um, it, it's a modern office. You know, don't get me wrong, but the building is old, and there's no central air. And so I've been battling with the owner as to how to put this in because, you know, central air is hard to put in on an old building. And uh, not the sort
2: of thing you want to retrofit.
1: Yeah. And it's not the thing I want to pay for either. And, you know, we've got these, everybody's got a wall conditioner and all that stuff. But in a studio situation, that's not always optimal. And uh, in one of our studios, we've actually walled off the windows and uh, our guest knows all about that, and we'll have him on in a minute to tell us the story but but so we've uh, decided that we can put up a uh, an air conditioner compressor on the roof attached to the to the penthouse that covers the ladder you know that goes down to the into the uh, attic. And uh, that's been a struggle just to get permission to do that but but it's one of these units that goes outside and then has a small pipe that comes in. So uh, it could be pretty good. But anyway, I digress.
2: So, Richard, we got some email this week? Yeah. uh, Benjamin Emmerich sent us a very interesting one, actually. He says, uh, hi, Carl. I know you've been very, very busy and haven't had time to do the promised follow-up on the general weirdness in Visual Studio 2005 on .NET Rock. Here is a link I think will save you and your listeners a lot of grief. And he references a link to a Dr. Dobbs article uh, published April 21st, 2006 with Rocky Latka, Billy Hollis, Bill Vaughn, and Kathleen Dollard. Yep. Gee, all those people seem rather familiar. Yeah, they do. And uh, <laughs> I Shrinksterized the link here, and it's at shrinkster.com slash FPE. So Foxtrot Papa Echo. Okay. And uh, enormous article.
1: Yeah, I read uh, it myself, and and it is big. And the basic consensus is: yes,
2: there are a few glitches, but um, it's worth it. I like the line: uh, "Visual Studio 2005 unstable, but highly recommended." Yeah.
1: Well, let me just explain what what we uh, what this guy is talking about. We um, right about launch time, there was uh, a bunch of blog posts that were sort of smacking down Visual Studio 2005, because it was buggy about, you know, uh, they, how we're, they were having bugs. And we were thinking that some of these bugs might be caused by third-party products, and, and we weren't having any of these problems, and, and remnants of beta software and that kind of stuff, because the beta was long for Visual Studio 2005.
2: And, yeah, you ended up with a lot of baggage in your machine a if you were one of the beta users.
1: Exactly. So we, um, we put down a, a challenge for people to write into us with their experiences using Visual Studio 2005, but the conditions were it had to be on machines where this w- was never installed before, and there weren't any beta versions, and there were no third-party products or add-ins. And uh, we got back a few mostly positive emails. Um, there weren't very many emails that, uh, that, uh, that we got that said people had problems. But, um, and then it, the sort of it all sort of died out right we it kind of fizzled it kind of fizzled and you know we had plans to do a show on this and there just wasn't anything to talk about so this article is great and uh you know it's a long article as you said and basically there are a few problems there are a few problems with visual studio uh that are sort of cosmetic problems um you know the designer freaks out every once in a while and there's a there was a cpu bug that got fixed i guess but uh, the white screen of darn Yeah, the white screen of darn that happens. <laughs> I've, you know and they were sort of scratching their head as to, how to how, you know, what causes it or how to fix it. And um, the consensus was, close down the IDE, load it back up again. I've gotten this basically um, myself, and I've always solved the problem by closing all the designers and doing a rebuild, you know, a rebuild all, building everything. And then everything works, seems to work okay. So just a little tip there from the Karl You don't necessarily have to restart the, uh, although
2: it might be easier, but you don't have to restart the Visual Studio. It, it does seem that many of these problems are fairly tough to reproduce. They're yeah. kind of erratic. Uh, right. So obviously tough to repair, too. And I see every so often, you know, we talk about third-party tools, I noticed that uh, Refactor played a role in some issues there as well. Mm-hmm. But I think those were mostly beta-related, that people who had old versions of Refactor, because it was being built while the beta was going on, right, uh, struggled with uh, these same sorts of problems. Exactly. Yeah. So, so I really think so many of these issues are are beta related and a couple of them are some strange transient. Obviously with the hotfix come uh, being put out, Microsofts found some issues and fixing them.
1: Right. So in other words, you know, most of the griping went away fairly uh, fairly early on. So that's that's why we haven't done a show on it because it just is a non-issue. Um, and again, even these guys who use Visual Studio 2005 say that despite The uh, couple anomalies that they list in there, which we've talked about, they still would rather use it over 2003. So that's a good sign. All right. Now that we have that out of the way, let's get on to the show. Michael Stiefel is here, and uh, he is the star of DNR TV this month. Uh, He came down early in the month, or late in May, actually, and we recorded four DNR TV shows back-to-back in one day. Let me uh, introduce him, and then we'll uh, we'll talk about what that experience was like and, of course, his topic, which is Windows Workflow Foundation. Michael Stiefel, principal of Reliable Software Incorporated, is a consultant on software architecture and development and the alignment of information technology with business goals. He is currently a member of the OASIS Technical Committee, developing a core SOA reference model. And uh, Richard, you remember we talked about that. Uh, the OASIS is is sort of defining SOA. Uh, Right. We brought that up in an earlier episode. He is a visiting scholar at Massachusetts Institute of Technology in the Science, Technology, and Society program, where his research and teaching focus is the teaching of engineering to high school and undergraduate students. As adjunct faculty, Stiefel has taught graduate and undergraduate software engineering courses at Northeastern University and Framingham State University. Michael Stiefel's education is from MIT with an interdisciplinary Ph.D. degree in nuclear engineering, political science, and history of technology, master's of science in nuclear engineering, and bachelor of science in electrical engineering. Jesus. I am an (laughs) idiot. That's what I am. He is an active member of... You you
3: have common sense. That's what you have.
1: (laughs) He is an active member of Independent Computer Consultants Association... And the IEEE Consultants Network, we're not worthy, man. You are an education powerhouse. Hi, Michael.
3: How you, after that, I don't know what to say. <laughs> and, I didn't expect you going to read the whole thing. And,
1: well, and, and I must say, and this is to your credit, that despite all of that, you're still a really nice guy.
3: Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you very much.
1: I never felt like I was in the presence of such uh, you know, a, a doctor, let alone uh, you know all that. So you managed to pull off the ordinary guy thing pretty well, Michael.
3: Well, thank you very much.
1: Yeah. Now, um, so let's talk about what I was talking about. Air conditioning was something that we did not have when you were down here. Is that
3: some sort of record to do four (laughs) shows in one sitting? That is
1: the record, actually. You know, and we haven't been doing it for long, so it's not hard to break, but, you know... That was a record, and it was a hot yeah, day. I mean, what is there,
2: there's only, there was only 20 shows done when you did your four, so you just increased the total size of the shows by what? Tw- uh, number of shows by 20%? Yeah. That's pretty dramatic.
3: <laughs> and if I remember, you were surprised that I was still... Uh, I could have done another show or two, I think. No, nah, I don't know. We were pretty <laughs> deep. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. It's all, you know, all that stuff that you learned in college, your perseverance. You know, Let's just keep going. Screw it. I don't care if I'm falling over from heat exhaustion. It was horrible, man. But anyway... They're good shows, and we're talking about Windows Workflow Foundation, which, um, you know, as an RD, we get early information, Richard and I, and we, you know, we're, we're privy to the stuff that's coming down the pike. So we've been hearing about WWF, and Richard may even have more experience than I did, but, and I've seen lectures on it and all that kind of stuff, but I had never gotten into it like you, uh, dove into it. And the reason is that I found that the documentation for, Windows Workflow Foundation is severely lacking. Would you agree?
3: Yes, and it leaves something to be desired on top of being lacking.
4: Yeah,
3: I mean, what's there um, is hard to use, and sometimes it's the truth, and it sometimes diverge.
1: <laughs> okay, that's a nice way to <laughs> say <that> for <laughs> <a>
3: circumlocution. <laughs> circum- <laughs>
1: <laughs> the truth and
2: it sometimes diverge. That's pretty good. Now, is this really a new product for Microsoft? Is this not the renaming of something else that they had?
3: Well, I mean, no, it is a new product. Intellectually, it and BizTalk share... Well, actually, the code, from my understanding, that started Workflow Foundation came out of BizTalk. Yeah. But BizTalk and it are two entirely different animals.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And this isn't a new concept either. I mean workflow Oh workflow's
3: been around forever and ever right. and ever. I right. mean IBM has had workflow products. I mean this is this is you know, there are other companies out there with workflow products.
1: Now you've had experience with these products from other companies? A little
3: bit. Not yeah. a great amount, but some.
1: Enough to know if uh if you like workflow better from Microsoft?
3: Well, I think the what this product is the beginning. Yeah. In other words, you can't compare these products with Workflow Foundation because yeah. this is a foundation. Yeah, you, it doesn't do anything for you per se.
1: It's not an application. It's it's right, not BizTalk. Yeah, right.
3: It, right. In that respect, that's a good point. That it's not even as good as BizTalk. I mean, BizTalk comes with adapters. It comes with you know health monitoring, you right. know, tracking, orchestration engine. You know, you can use BizTalk out of the box to do something. Right. Workflow Foundation is about putting workflow into your application. Yeah. You have to do work.
1: Yep. And all you got to do is watch DNR TV and you'll find <laughs> out exactly what that entails. But, uh...
3: And I'm sure uh, there are vendors out there, well, I know there are vendors out there, who are putting Workflow Foundation into their products.
2: Yeah. I mean, in the end, this is nothing more than a set of libraries oriented on a particular set of tasks so that you don't have to write them yourself.
3: Right. I mean, they're .NET framework classes. Right. So, you know, any .NET application, or for that matter, um, you know, anything that incorporates .NET classes, you know, you can incorporate workflow in there.
1: Now, probably like most listeners, they're sitting out there and saying, okay, well, I'm not even sure what Workflow is, let alone whether I should, you know, whether there's a place for using Workflow Foundation in my applications. Mm-hmm. So let's start, with, uh, let's start with what it is.
3: All right. Well, Workflow, the easiest way to think about Workflow is that every business, and at the end of the day, of course, what any the software activity is about or one huge part of the software activity is about bringing value to businesses, automating business processes. Yeah. And these business processes have both human beings participating and computers participating. Yeah. And the idea is by automating part of these processes, you can bring value to businesses. And I know that's a lot of, you know, generalization, yeah. Yeah. and, And, you know, marketing spiel. But there there is merit to this
1: now you're basically what you're doing in a in workflow in a workflow application or the application of workflow is deciding is is making a sort of um, a process through which data is accessed and/or modified and decisions are made and based on the outcomes certain other things get called and basically you're you're sort of laying out a a process of software without writing code. Is that?
3: You're someone's writing code.
1: In other words, I mean, I mean but if you have workflow in your application, the user of your application, right? Yeah,
3: is not it, writing. Is code. not
1: writing code, right. and they're getting to direct, sort of, uh, direct how the process goes. Yes. Yes. And they do that usually graphically, right?
3: Well, they could do it graphically, or they might. Um, you know, decide to change the status of a document. Yeah. Um, They may want to see, you know, how many, where the parts are in a um, factory floor, you know, how much is completed. Yeah. So they may be just observing things. They may be monitoring things.
1: Yeah. Is it typical to uh, give the end user of an application uh, a designer, such as the business, the BizTalk orchestrator, so that they can modify the, uh, you know, the flow and and everything about it.
3: Well, this is as we discussed on on the show. This is this is an interesting thing. You you go to clients and you ask them for their list of things, and everybody wants drag and drop. Yeah, but do they actually use drag and drop? Right. Um. Not really. Mm. It's something they want to have. It's something they want to have the ability to have.
1: But, but sort, right of, the now, grail, like sort it's, of the holy grail. It's sort of the holy grail. I mean,
3: certainly, you you know, programmers in ASP.NET, in uh, Windows Forms, we use drag and drop all the time. But to make an analogy with, you know, Excel macros, do they drag and drop the same way that people write these monster Excel macros? Yeah. No, we're not there yet.
4: Right. Hmm.
1: So So I guess then the question is, Well, if you're not going to extend that flow uh, agility to the end user graphically or whatever, why use it at all? I mean, what's the benefit to you as a developer then um, to, to using Workflow Foundation?
3: Fair enough question. And the reason you're interested in Workflow Foundation is because building workflows is very different from building sort of the applications that Developers in the on the Microsoft platform have tended to develop in the past, yeah because if you are think of most applications that you've built, they tend to not extend over long periods of time, yeah they are not very interrupt driven
1: yeah okay
3: so think of the think of a real workflow think of um you know document management or surgery, which is the example that we used on the on the on the on the show is that these are long running processes. Yeah. You have to be and for example you can't use standard transaction models like ACID transactions. You have to use compensation. You have to be able to handle events that come in at unknown times and this is intrinsic to the workflow.
1: So basically if your application is such where you have a bunch of components that do all this work, And the, and your business is such that, uh, the flow needs to be modified on a regular basis rather than having to go in and dive into the code and deal with the details of the code every time. If you map it out in a workflow, then you're become, you're, you're becoming more agile. Is that right? Fair right, I mean, assessment.
3: well, there's two, when you say modify the flow, there are two ways to think of modifying the flow. Yeah. You can certainly dynamically, under certain circumstances, in Windows Workflow Foundation, modify the workflow. Yeah. But I don't think that's what you were talking about. Yeah. You were more talking about the case that if if you have, well, let, let's talk a little bit about what the components of workflow are. Sure. The The fundamental reusable part of of workflow is something called an activity. Mm -hmm. An activity represents some, either one of two things, either some fundamental unit of work, like approving a document, Mm -hmm. or, you know, having a lab test done, Mm. or some sort of control flow. In other words, it's some if-then logic that you put in. So those those are sort of the fundamental types of activities. And then you have the workflow engine itself, which manipulates these activities. And the workflow engine is fundamentally, as Microsoft likes to say, neutral about the nature of work or neutral about the nature, nature of the activities. Okay, right. So by having by, by designing workflow and building custom activities, you can build this workflow product to do almost anything you want it to do.
1: Well, but the same argument can be made about software. You can make software do almost anything you want correct. it to do as well. But, so.
3: Correct. But the, this is the argument that has been going on since the, since the beginning of time. In other words, when compilers first came out, I mean, I still remember. I've been programming long enough to remember when people still argued over whether a hand assembly language, you know, someone who programmed assembly language by code, by hand, mm. could produce better code than the compiler could. Mm-hmm. And now, no one argues about that. Mm-hmm. simply because it's so much better to use a compiled or interpreted language mm-hmm. rather than hand-code assembly language. Similarly, yes, the answer is yes, you could do this all without workflow, but having a workflow engine makes it so much easier.
1: And, and more adaptive to change, I think. And is, more because yeah. you,
3: the human mind can only work with so much at once. So the question is, you know, if you have ten things to remember, what are the ten things you want to remember? Opcodes codes and branches? Or you know, and and file locations on disk, or some higher level abstractions such as you know compensation or you know asynchronous communication.
1: I see. Um, okay, so is this so, making sense? Yes, it, it's making sense. Uh, I'm I, my my question. My next question is: so that if you have uh, an application with a with processes that are fairly complex, I guess what you're saying. The using workflow foundation might be a way to help you organize, simplify, and at the same time make it more malleable when when the product is finished. Would right. you say that's what, a good kind yes, of but, out, analysis?
3: Right. But yes, it is. But the thing you have to think about is how long running it is. Yeah. How much inter you know, asynchronous interaction well, you let's have start, with the
1: rest- y- Let's, start, let's go back to long-running. So are you okay. saying processes that are long-running are more suited to workflow or, or shorter-running? No.
3: The, the, the fact is that most workflows
4: yeah.
3: tend to be long-running. Think of any business process. Yeah. There are very few business processes that get done in a day. Think of, think of the following scenario. What's the difference between writing a classic CRUD database application? You know, create, read, update, delete application. Yep. And doing, going to Amazon.com, let's say, and ordering a book. Yeah. There, for example, why is it that Amazon.com sends you an email to let you know that your book is in stock?
1: Right, because of a, a workflow process that's defined somewhere. Maybe maybe on paper, but it's well, why defined did they somewhere. tell
3: you why didn't they tell you, right at the computer screen, when you say order, the book is in stock?
2: They didn't know at that point.
3: Well, why didn't they know? Couldn't they check the order inventory database? Uh, I see, but
2: it may,
1: be, it may be in stock at the time you're ordering, but maybe not at the time the order is fulfilled.
3: Well, but why don't you put a lock on that database record while you're there? You know, you say, I'm interested in this book. You put it in your... A shopping cart, and someone locks that record
1: because it's in your cart. Nobody, you haven't bought it yet, and somebody else well, could, could buy it before you, you, you do.
3: Well, why do not you? Th- you're thinking about it. You put a reserve on it, and right. when you decide to abandon the cart, then you release the record. Well, there's a good reason why they don't do that, because keeping database records locked for long periods of time tends to be a very bad idea yeah. if you want to produce a scalable solution. Yeah, and what Amazon wants to do is have a very flexible and scalable user interface. Yeah. So you could have hundreds of thousands. I mean, I don't know how many people access Amazon at a time, but you can be pretty sure it, it's a lot. Yeah. And they want that to be scalable. So if they have to lock records in the back and keep those records locked.
1: Right. Then ordinary queries slow down is what you're ordinary saying. Ordinary
3: queries slow down. Yeah. And even... Ordering books, they, people will be told yeah. that books are not available when perhaps they are available and they're being locked for some car- you know, how do you know a cart has been abandoned? Mm. There's some timeout period
4: Right. Suppo- yeah, it's just suppose time
3: suppose I'm ordering and dinner is ready yeah. and I walk away <laughs> and then I come back yeah. and then you know I decide to order. This is the problem with user interaction and, and database transactions.
1: Hmm. that's a good example.
2: Yeah, and and I, you made a point about workflow taking time. The bottom line is any significant business task involves more than one person, Correct. and those people aren't all lined up waiting for the next person to finish. Absolutely, yeah. There is latency between each of those handoffs.
3: Right, and and that latency, which is the key thing, it makes it diff- why you have trouble using the classic asset transaction model.
2: Right. Right.
1: So I can see the service-oriented nature of workflow sort of, you know, coming to the surface here. Absolutely. That's no accident.
3: That is no accident. Yeah. And, and, the, and compensation is something that, you know, it sounds like a fancy concept, but I'm sure everybody is compensated in their life. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, let's, <laughs> you know, let me give the example I, I give almost every time I talk. And, you know, I ask this question whenever I give a talk on service orientation or on workflow, how many people know what compensation is? And invariably, nobody raises their hands. Maybe one or two people raise their hands. And then I tell them that you've all done compensation in your life. And then I tell the following story, which I'm, you know, which call you've heard. And, yep. uh, you know, I hope I won't bore you with but it's the same thing. A
1: well, listeners haven't heard it. So.
3: Right. So you go and want to go, you know, you're going on vacation and you have to make an airline reservation and you have to make a hotel reservation. I mean, we've all done this online. So you go and make an airline reservation and you reserve your flight and then you go and the hotel site and try to find a hotel for the, you know, the week that you've got the airline reservation for. And lo and behold, you find you can't get the hotel you want and the city you want at the given time. So what do you do? You go back, and if it's within 24 hours, the airline will generally let you do this, is cancel your hotel reservation. Well, a cancellation of the hotel reservation is the compensating activity.
4: Mm -hmm.
3: You could not have, for lots of reasons, have one transaction to cover both the airline reservation and the hotel reservation. You know, in the classic database scenario, you'd open up a transaction, make your... Uh, airline reservation, and then finally you can't make your hotel reservation. Roll back the whole transaction. I mean, so it, just w-
1: if you you could use a distributed transaction if you had control over both databases, but usually you
4: don't, right?
3: Well, I mean, the distributed tra- first of all two-phase commit is hard enough. Yeah. In a situation where you have low latency, but remember, you have high latency here. Yeah. And suppose it takes a while. How is a distributed transaction coordinator going to know whether something is timed out or not?
1: Yeah, it doesn't work with asynchronous processes, basically. The funny
2: thing is that if you actually study DTC, it has compensation transactions. So if you watch, I've done this with SQL Server, where you go in in a distributed transaction, write a row inside of a distributed transaction, SQL Server's agreed it's done. And then you go off to your other pieces and something fails. So that you go back through the DTC and make the request, to have this fail. It's actually a separate connection that fires up, rolls back the transaction, and shuts down again. It's, yeah. And it's called the compensator.
3: But that's not really – that's actually – that's what two-phase commit is all about. In, in other words, everybody goes and says they've done their share of the transactional work, and then waits for a signal from the transaction coordinator to say commit, mm. and then sends a commit, and everyone commits. The problem is, if anywhere in that process a server does not respond in a certain amount of time, the transaction coordinator will abort everything. Mm. And the question is, in a high latency environment, it's very difficult to know, but the difference between a timeout yeah. and somebody's just taking a long time to make up their mind.
4: Mm. Hmm.
1: This is a good place to uh, stop for just a second, and I'll tell the users about our sponsor, without which this show would not be possible. Data Dynamics is our sponsor, and they're the proud makers of ActiveReports.net. And you can check them out online at www.datadynamics.com. And we're back talking with Michael Stiefel about uh, Windows Workflow Foundation. So um, let's talk about the different parts of the framework itself, the the Windows Foundation framework. What what all is involved? This is an API that you you add a reference to as a .NET assembly, and then uh, there are, are classes that you use. What, what what's the typical experience when you first get started with this?
3: All right. Well, there are. As you say, a bunch of .NET classes and a bunch of assemblies that you link to, mm-hmm. and there are two sort of pieces that you yourself have to write. One is a host. In other words, this workflow has to be hosted in some environment. Yeah, you know, you know, it might be a console application, a Windows service, a Windows form application, right. SharePoint. So it has to be hosted in some environment. So somebody, either you or if you're using SharePoint, which, which to my understanding, uh, will have a workflow host inside of it. There has to be something host.
1: Now, would your application be the host or some other container? Typical,
3: well, typically it depends. Yeah. Um, if you are part of the workflow, you know, if you're an activity in the workflow, you don't have to be a host. Okay. But something has to be responsible for starting up the workflow runtime,
4: mm-hmm.
3: listening to certain events, communicating with the workflow, if need be, mm-hmm. and shutting down the workflow.
1: Would this Could this be a component, or does it have to be something uh, with an executable?
3: Well, I mean, ultimately, there's some executable somewhere. Sure. All right. Um, whether it's formally an assembly or not, that doesn't matter. Okay. I mean, if I have an exe and I call an assembly that's hosting the runtime,
4: that's effectively
3: fine. that's an XE. Yeah. So there there has to be some, you know, or you're a Windows service. You're not, right. you know, there has to be something that has the capability of maintaining its existence. Okay. And then there's the workflow itself, which is a bunch of, which is some activities uh, and some services. Mm-hmm. For example, you have uh, a service that allows uh, you know you to keep track of multiple activities at once you have it can have a tracking service
4: mm-hmm.
3: and of course, workflow provides you know several activities out of the box for you know simple control flow for calling out a workflow for using web services and the like
1: and One thing that I was really uh, surprised to see and happy to see is that you know, this, this integrates into Visual Studio so nicely that you get an item on your toolbar called workflow, right? And then you get a workflow toolbar that has all these things that you can drop onto a workflow designer. Yes. And they have, you know, sort of, sort of built-in activities. There's a wrapper to create your own activities. And what are some of those things that, uh, that show up in the toolbox?
3: Well, for example, things like if-then, well, while... Uh, those are the sort of the simple ones for um, you know coordinating workflow. Yeah. Then you have things like sequential workflow, so you can have containers of other workflow.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: You have things like um, state, so you can build a state-driven workflow.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: You have things like policy activity and the condition uh, activity group that you know the CAG, so that you can actually handle. Um, complicated workflows that either based on data or on multiple things that have to be iterated through. Okay. So those are the kinds of things that are are, are there out of the box. They're easy, you know, there this is easy stuff to show than to talk about.
4: Sure, yeah.
1: Yeah. And and uh in the designer then you you attach your items just a lot like the BizTalk orchestrator. Um, and then develop code between, behind these activities. And uh, you, you mentioned events. There are events that happen um, that you that you must handle and some that you can, obviously. Right.
3: So there's also the mechanism for handling asynchronous events, and there's also mechanisms for communication between the workflow and the host.
1: Yeah. What are some of the uh, examples that, uh, that we're going to cover this month in, in DNR TV?
3: Well, there are several examples. Uh, Of course, we have, you know, examples that illustrate some of the sort of the fundamental activities while, if then, uh, calling web, using web services Hmm. and the like. These are the foundational building blocks, Mm -hmm. the programmatic building blocks. And then we have a couple of applications to show how workflow is actually used. We have the hospital admissions example Mm -hmm. to show how you might use workflow to admit somebody to a hospital. We also have a a uh, patient tracking service where you can sort of track where patients are yeah. in the course of their hospital stay. Right, and we have a very simple example of using uh, the policy engine to determine whether or not a patient has enough insurance.
1: Now, the policy engine is what's that all about?
3: Well, basically, all businesses have policies. To determine, you know, who gets insurance, uh, whether you qualify for a certain benefit, whether you're allowed to take a course. I mean, for example, let's say you're a programmer and you work at a large corporation. There may be some policy when you're eligible to, to go for training. So anything, anything that's a complicated decision
4: based These are on rules, rules, basically, yeah,
3: you, uh, you can use in the policy engine.
1: Very cool. And the policy engine, you obviously get to to write the code that determines whether or not things happen,
4: right? Well,
3: you can do it in one of two ways. Uh, On the show, we showed how to use uh, both sort of code um, conditions, Mm -hmm. and also we talked about um, using the rules editor. You can also use the code DOM to build complicated rule-based engine.
1: The rules editor was something that I I was really particularly interested in. This is sort of like a, a pop-up dialogue that has um, it almost looks like a code window, but it's for setting up complicated, and I don't know, I can't remember if they were nestable, but certain conditions with a, with a sort of a, a language. What's yeah. uh,
3: Well, you can determine the priority of the rules. You can determine how they get chained together. You can, for example, if you, if in the process of evaluating the rules, you change some of the conditions that some of the other rules have, do yeah. you reevaluate those rules or not? Yeah. So this can get quite sophisticated.
1: And I guess if you've used BizTalk, you've seen similar things, right?
3: Well, I'm not, I'm not that familiar with BizTalk. Dude.
1: What is the, and we talked about this, I guess, before, but the difference between the two is that BizTalk is an application and workflow foundation Uh, Is is a framework.
4: Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. It seems to me that BizTalk has grown into something that's more workflow oriented. I mean, in the early days, it really talked about being a, uh, a translator between different transmission methods and the sort of the workflow grew from this. Uh, over time, and now it looks like that workflow functionality has been pulled off, cleaned up, .dotnetized, yeah. and turned into this foundation set of classes.
3: Right. But on the other hand, you have to remember that, that BizTalk is still doing workflow, but at a much higher level. BizTalk is about getting applications, sometimes on different platforms, working together. Right. That's the so-called idea of orchestration.
2: Well, it's platform agnostic in the sense that many of its messaging protocols, you have no idea what the platform is. Right. You receive a chunk of HTTP or an email right. or you know any other of a dozen data formats. You have no idea where it came from.
3: Right. Mm. On the other hand, if there's human interaction involved, Bitstalk is not always the best choice.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's really not what it was built to do. It yeah. was really a machine-to-machine orchestration where I could see that uh, Workflow is much more oriented on integrating into your applications and, and other Microsoft tools like Office to be able to allow human interaction and Workflow. Absolutely. You know, I always thought that this technology would come out of Exchange, that the huh. whole messaging would be the anchor around this. Yeah. But it never really came to pass. Hmm.
3: Well, that's an interesting thought. I I think the reason for that is and i'm just speculating here is that email is too loosely coupled right hmm. and it does not lend itself well i mean first of all there's no guaranteed delivery if you look at the you know the protocol email protocol there's no guaranteed delivery so there's no reliable messaging right and there it's very difficult to coordinate email messages i mean email is a payload hmm and how do right. you specify how you control email, it's very, very, very difficult to think of how you do that.
1: We need an alternative
2: to SMTP POP3 that, yeah, that the, really but, works. Nothing's guaranteed in <laughs> SMTP, not who it was sent from, not who it went to, you know, not what's in it. Nothing's guaranteed. It's just a, too raw a protocol for anything, really. Have,
1: have either of you used
4: IMAP?
3: No.
2: Yeah. You have? What, what's your opinion of that? Well, you know, the biggest problem is the clients with IMAP. IMAP is not actually another pretty raw spec as well. Is it? It's, an, it's a very low-level protocol. It, it addresses some of the issues, but not all of them. It's just a better think on how to deal with certain large-scale uh, mail-related tasks. Yeah. But it's not the answer either. I mean, it really doesn't get into orchestration or gets into you know guaranteed delivery and those kinds of things. That that's the the area really that web services has moved into. And looking at how uh, the problem, of course, web services is that you need that middle piece. All right, I have a web center interface here, and I have another interface over here. Maybe I have an interface or something else over there. How am I going to move this stuff? Where you know? How am I going to get around? And what decisions? What engine do I use to make those decisions?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Hey, um, Michael. Let's talk about uh, Oasis for a minute. Now, sure. we we had Michelle Arubas Monte on the show a couple weeks ago, and um, she was talking about SOA, and we were talking about uh, standards, standards of SOA, and through an interaction with an email that we got from a listener, we we learned that Oasis is sort of trying to be the uh, the place that everybody goes to to work on the definitions around uh, service-oriented architecture. Is that a fair that assumption? That is correct. So is, is this a, 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 is this something that you have direct contact with? Yes, or? I'm
3: on the technical committee that is actually trying to accomplish this.
1: Cool. So tell us, what is it? What is okay. the definition of SOS? <laughs> <Okay. laughs>
3: <laughs> well, I'll give you, give me $100,000 and I'll it Yeah. <laughs> well... Uh, first, let me give you a little background about what, what OASIS is. OASIS yeah. is a, one of the standards organizations that exist, like the W3C, uh, you know, Rosetta Net. I mean, there are a whole bunch of standards organizations out there sure. for various purposes. And OASIS is one of them, and one of their foci is this idea of service orientation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll notice, uh, for example... Some of the web services specifications. Some of them have been done by Oasis. Some of them done by the W3C. Mm-hmm. And that's an interesting story about why one goes to one place and one goes to the other. But that's sort of not uh, of interest. The only reason why I bring that up is, I want there's a very strong distinction to be made between web services and service oriented architecture. Yeah. Web services are an implementation technology that can be used to develop a service-oriented architecture, but they're two separate things. Service-oriented architecture is a means for building distributed applications, or a way of thinking about how to build distributed applications, where capabilities that someone has are matched up with needs that someone else has. And that, Mm. in essence, is what service orientation is all about.
1: That's pretty and vague, re- though, don't you think? What? That's pretty vague, though. I mean...
3: Well, but but if you... I mean, you can... Uh, yes. It, at that level of abstraction, it is vague. Mm. But the reference model is all about developing a vocabulary so you can talk about what service orientation means.
4: Yeah. I mean, right. you
3: asked me... You ask me in, in thri- 30 words, sure. two box tops <laughs> in a quarter, to explain to you what service orientation is. Yeah. And that, at, that is at its, at its simplest level
1: I see and when you say matching matching up um, that those two words is you know that's that's where all the meat is I mean under those two words right well, but right
3: but the yeah. thing is that definition and the vocabulary that we've developed for talking about it in the reference model are is technology independent yes, and platform independent. It's abstracted. Yeah. And, and in fact, I recommend everybody. I mean, it's available. If you go to Oasis and you go to the Service-Oriented Architecture Technical Committee homepage, you can see the the draft. Well, oh, actually, it's a committee draft. Hopefully, this is our last round. We're on a fifteen-day. Um, round of public comment on the on the changes we got from our first 60-day public comment mm-hmm. and hopefully after that is over we'll be able to submit that to Oasis for approval as a Oasis specification
4: that's cool now
3: what we're also working now is on a on a reference architecture to talk about how you actually build these kinds of systems
1: what's the uh, relationship if any between Oasis and Microsoft do does Microsoft sort of use Oasis as a uh, as a place to you know to to get specs to work from, or how what's is there any relationship between the two?
3: Well, Microsoft is a member of oasis. As Microsoft is a member of the W three C.
4: Okay, I get so it. Let me
3: make the following observation, and people right. can can and can take with it what they wish. The WS Security Specification went through a way, uh, is an oasis specification. The WS Addressing Specification is a W three C specification. Hmm. And you know, companies, Microsoft, IBM, and all of various companies, try to submit these specifications to the to the standards body that will, will do the sort of the combination between um expeditious processing
4: mm-hmm.
3: and doing a good job.
4: Yeah.
2: <laughs> I think I understand it, what you're saying. You say that very carefully, Michael, and I appreciate that you did <laughs> There are a variety of motivations involved in many of these organizations working on these things. Right.
3: Now, you have to ask, you know, are you a vendor? Are you a user? I mean, the great things about these, these committees are that they give the users a chance. To express what they need right. in these technologies, as opposed to both the vendors and the analysts, yeah, you know, who also go off and 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 if you wish,
4: yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Michael, I'm going to have to ask you to wait for just a minute while I uh, talk about uh, the upcoming classes at Franklin's Net. I just want to run down the schedule here. Speaking of uh, Windows Communications Foundation and Michelle Rubustamonte, she's going to be doing an iDesign class live here at Franklin's Net in New London, Connecticut, on Windows Communications Foundation, August 21st, the week of August 21st. Also, Miguel Castro is going to be here doing uh, an ASP.NET Masterclass in VB on August 7th. And he's going to do two C-Sharp ASP.NET 2.0 classes July 10th, September 28th. And, of course, we have VB.NET Masterclasses July, August, September, October, November. Go to www.franklinsnet to read more about those classes. We're back. We're talking with Michael Stiefel about, uh, oh, all sorts of things. Uh, Windows Workflow Foundation, Service-Oriented Architecture, Oasis, the W3C, Microsoft, and you.
2: (laughs) Have we complained about the name enough yet? Yeah. What's with the... WWF. I mean, isn't that a crowded space already?
3: Well, I... What I'll tell you what I have heard, some interesting stories. I mean, first of all, when this technology first came out, it was called WWF, and now Microsoft has decided to use the acronym WF. Right, right. Um, and I'm not sure whether this is for legal reasons or just to avoid the panoply of jokes. I've been told, and I've and never researched this, but it makes a good story anyway, that the World Wildlife Federation and the Worldwide Wrestling Federation, had some sort of court case. I'm not su- quite sure who sued who or, or I, what.
1: I heard that uh, the wrestlers were sued by the tree huggers.
3: And, <laughs> and the court sort of decided that there wouldn't be too much confusion over the names. Yeah. That people who were looking for one would not somehow be mistakenly directed to the other. Yeah. And they both could use Somewhat different
1: audiences. The panda yes. bear might have given it away.
3: Yes. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Some of those bears could give those wrestlers a good run for their money.
1: Now there's a good idea. Sick the panda bears on the wrestlers, and now we'll have some fun. And maybe Forget the two of them could grizzlies. wipe each other out, and we could go back to having WWF. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Right, so I I I th- I heard that it was precisely because they didn't want to, they wanted to avoid legal trouble. I mean, that's the reason that they have these cryptic names in the first place, and they don't go with those names. You know, I think it's just fortuitous that the word Vista happened to be available. Mm-hmm. You know, um, but but it isn't always, and they want to be free to have co- their code names, and then those code names have to turn into. Something that somebody that anybody is going to sue them over, so that's usually right. why they have Windows or
2: Microsoft in the name, right? You know, I was just thinking it'd be a whole lot nicer if they'd called it like Windows Foundation Classes Workflow Communications, just so we could drop that whole prefix and just focus on the only word that matters, which is workflow, right? The problem, of course, again, is that you know, other companies
1: that have products called workflow or whatever. You know, therein lies the problem. That's why they have to identify them with Microsoft or Windows or whatever. I think it's an unfortunate situation that they're in, but i you know, I don't know as if I see any alternative unless they find a, a word, as I say, like Vista, that is available that that anybody isn't going to sue them over. And those words typically are nonsense words. They, you know, they don't they don't refer to the technology in any way. But I like those words because. You know, damn it, you're not trying to sell the technology with a word that we have to use over and over and over and over again. It's like we get it already.
3: Well, there's actually a classic story. I'm I'm sure you've heard the story about the Chevy Nova.
1: Oh, yeah. It doesn't go. Yeah. In
3: Spanish, (laughs) you know, when they try to sell that in Spanish-speaking countries, with the Chevy Nova, it doesn't go.
1: Well, I heard that the word Vista in Sanskrit is very close to the word shit in Sanskrit. (laughs)
3: <laughs> so all those sanskrit programmers out there well indians,
1: indians i mean you know in india they they understand sanskrit and well
3: no sanskrit is a literary language yeah. i mean that, i don't know how many native speakers it's I, I do not know how many cognates there are you know in the in, in the various Indian languages and Sanskrit
4: no
1: I don't know either but i i mean if you're an educated person in in the east in the in the east you know you you probably understand a little sanskrit um as as we would understand latin you know Mm-hmm. yeah yeah.
2: So what else are we going to talk about here? We've got a few minutes left. Uh, is there yeah, any... You know, what we, we really haven't brought to the listeners is, so how do I go about getting these classes, this library? Hey, good, right. good idea.
3: Right now, it's in beta 2. And right. you can go to the Microsoft site and download. There are several things you, ha- you have to download. First, of course, is the classes themselves, then there's the SDK, and then there's also a Visual Studio add-on so that you can have the designer peer. peer. Okay. There's also several other things that might be useful for you to do, um, aside from you know listening to my uh, DNR TV talks and you know going to my <laughs> website and getting the um, uh, the slides and the the code examples.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: How's that for a slug and yeah. there are the <laughs> hands-on labs lo- you, you told me to promote the show no, that's uh, what it's all
1: about you know it's good <laughs> that's stuff <what> it's
3: about <laughs> um there also is the hands-on labs from the pdc which mm-hmm. you can um download and there are several sites let me see if i can um just check what they are so i can tell them to your Listeners,
1: well you know uh, we can uh we can just put up uh, uh the links after the show right on the, website. the
3: workflow windows workflow dot net okay. uh which is a uh, a Microsoft site that has stuff about workflow on it of course there are plenty there are blogs out there people who are blogging about workflow, yeah, and there is of course the Vista developer Center for Windows Workflow Foundation, yeah. So there are resources out there.
1: All right, very good. Now, are you also doing something at TechEd?
3: No, I'm not doing anything at TechEd on workflow. But I have, i had made some submissions to conferences, and hopefully, in the. Next coming months, I'll be, able, I'll be able to talk about workflow at some conferences.
1: Well, I, I can tell you that, uh, you know, going through the DNR TV recordings with you is very educational for me. So if this is at all int- of interest to you, you should definitely check that out at DNRTV.com all this month in June. The first four four uh, Thursdays in June anyway is when we'll, we'll have uh, Michael's shows on. Michael, uh, we usually end the show by asking the guest, you know, if there's anything cool they've seen online lately, or maybe a toy that you've picked up, uh, something that's kept your interest recently?
3: Well, that's an interesting question. Um, Well, totally apropos to almost nothing else, is I am (laughs) trying to resurrect my high school French.
4: Ah, oh no.
3: What? I'm starting to teach myself French, and there are various... It's interesting to see how people have struggled with using technology to try to educate people in yeah. with language yeah. and it is surprisingly how little progress people have really made yeah. in, in doing this. none of this sort of the software tools that really um, seem to have really grabbed my attention of interest, yeah. And I'm back using some of the more traditional tools.
1: Cassette tapes or whatever. Well, I
3: mean, and even among the cassette tapes, they, they vary, or the integrated film, yeah. you know, and um, uh, workbook type things.
1: What about that uh, company I always see in the back of, like, Sky Mall Magazine, where the, 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 the chick with the blonde hair and the blue business suit, you know, sitting at that- a table with a laptop?
3: I think I know which one you're referring to, Yeah, and I don't want to give my opinion because I don't want you to be sued.
1: Okay, well, we'll leave it at that.
3: (laughs) I'm not sure which one you're talking about, So, but I mean, I'm just sort of, uh, um, you know, I mean...
1: I'm not sure either, come to think of it.
2: (laughs) No idea. I have no idea what I just said. I think I've seen that woman in like a lot of ads.
1: Yeah, that's a pretty... uh, All right, well, anyway... How long have you been doing this?
3: Well, I I have found some things that have been helpful. I've been doing this since about uh, uh, early February. Mm -hmm.
1: Um, Now, now why French?
3: Well, first of all, there's several reasons. Uh, First of all, I learned it in high
1: school. Okay, so you have a running start.
3: So I have a running start. It is a Romance language, which is related to English. Mm -hmm. So certain of the grammatical structures... Are similar. Mm-hmm. It, um, there are some notorious differences between French and English. Yeah. Um, you know, French, for example, is not a phonetic language. Hmm. Uh, not that English is either. But yeah. uh, in fact, most of the horrible spelling. Yeah. I mean, English is an interesting conglomeration of a of, of French on top of a Germanic language.
1: Right. Yeah. It's kind of strange. And
3: it's interesting because. As a result of that merger, we got rid of a lot of the, you know, we don't, we use word order in a yeah. way instead of, of noun declinations. We use word order and prepositions. Yeah. So in that respect, we're a lot closer to Chinese grammatically than we are to French.
4: <laughs> well, right.
3: Um. So, but on the other hand, we don't have gender. We got rid of gender. Yeah. I mean, both German and French have gender, and it's amazing. You know, the whole idea of grammatical gender is an interesting one. It is interesting. Um, we don't have it in English. That's uh, why
1: we always have a problem with he, she.
3: Right. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, they, they, I mean, if you really want to read uh, humorous stuff on, on, on language, you should read. Um, Mark Twain on the German language, hmm. where he talks about, for example, having to wait weeks and weeks and weeks for the verb to show up in a German sentence, <laughs> because because German is a verb final language, like I believe Japanese is. I mean, the, 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 in other words, English is a subject verb ob, object language. Yeah. The classic sentence: I threw the ball. Yeah. Subject verb object. Yeah. Um, German is a verb final language. Hmm. Yeah. The other thing, of course, is that you know the gender. For example, if you are an unmarried woman, your gender, you know, it is, it, you know, is neuter. In other words, ah. Frau line is of neuter gender. It's yeah. only when you become a Frau that you become a female gender. Yeah. Although, to my understanding, with political correctness now, no one uses Frau line anymore. You know, yeah. if you're over the age of ten or something like
1: that. <laughs> ah. Ah. Interesting. Hey, what about Esperanto? Do you ever try thinking? Do you ever think about? Uh trying to learn that, or is that but a no lost one cause? Uses it.
3: No one uses it.
1: Well, tell us what it was, what the idea was. Well, it was, the
3: idea was to have a universal language for communication. Yeah. And the idea is they would simplify the language to get, re- I mean, have regular verb conjugations and, and and the like. But the problem is the reason why you get irregularities in languages is when people start to use language.
4: Yeah.
3: I mean, for, for, let, let me pick... Pick a particular example in English. All right, you know you you, you're supposed to say it's I, Mm. all right, Mm -hmm. because it's the predicate nominative. You know, instead of it's me, but everyone says it's me. Mm -hmm. So it's me has gradually you know come into to use. On the other hand, in France, you always say set French. You always say set moi. You
4: never,
3: you'd never, never, ever say set je. So a lot of what passes for grammatical rules are really, you know, the result of, you know, how people have used the language.
1: And that's really the the, tr- the true way languages evolve anyway, by being bastardized and, and you know, uh, modernized by slang, right?
3: Right. Well, the question is always, what is it that the educated people speak? Yeah. And that is generally considered today... Um, what the definition of proper grammar is. Yeah. Because a lot of these, you know, when people started researching grammar in the 17th and 18th and 19th century, they tend to use used Greek and Latin right. as the model, and these are totally inappropriate models for many languages. Mm. For example, uh, let's pick the, the classic one. You know, in English, you're not supposed to split in an infinitive. Hmm. you know put some you know to do or to have or to you know yeah. or or is an infinitive and supposed to put something between now well that comes from latin and in latin you can't split an infinitive because it's one word for <laughs> 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 so the stay famous intelligent one of, you wouldn't split it <laughs> right so winston the famous one of winston churchill this is a rule up with which i will not put <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Because you're not supposed to enter You know, you're not supposed to end a sentence With, a, with a, you know, preposition. a preposition
1: Yeah, there's that great joke You know the joke I'm about to tell, right? Where the, you know, the Yale man goes to Harvard And uh, he's driving around He rolls down the window And he says to a Harvardite He says, hey, where's the library at? And the guy says, at Harvard We never end a sentence with a li- with a a with a preposition He says, oh, I'm sorry Where's the library at, asshole? All right, on that, we're going to have to wrap it up. Michael, thank you very much for DNR TV. Thanks for .NET Rocks and and your work on Windows Workflow Foundation. It really opened my eyes. And and I I really encourage anybody who's the least bit skeptical of, you know, yet another technology to implement in my day-to-day programming to just check out DNR TV. Just take a look at it, and, and uh, perhaps the light the light bulb will go off, perhaps not. But at least check it out. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. And uh, we'll talk to you next week on .NET Rocks.
0: .NET Rocks can be found online at www.dotnetrocks.com and at msdn.microsoft.com slash d-o-t-n-e-t-r-o-c-k-s dotnet Rocks is edited each week by Jeff Maceolik that's me, and Carl Franklin, who is also executive producer. All music heard on .NET Rocks, including Toy Boy, the theme song, is created and produced by Carl Franklin and Franklin Brothers Band, Carl Never Got Sleeps net Rocks is produced for Franklin's Net by Plop Productions, providing professional audio and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. Plop, it's time to get your impact back.
4: time